0: Welcome, everyone, back to SALT Talks. It's great to have you here. I don't know if if you tuned in last Friday, but we had a great uh, SALT Talk with General Kelly that made a little bit of news, and we've been enjoying all the conversations we've been having, so thanks again for joining us today. Uh, My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which, as many of you know, is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. With these SALT Talks, we try to replicate the environment that we created at our conferences, which is both providing a platform for big ideas and providing a window into the minds of subject matter experts, uh, which today we have three of the leading independent RIAs in the country, uh, Carrie Firestone, Shannon Sakosha, and Keith Cardoza. And I'll, I'll read out bios for each, each one of the panelists that are joining us today. Um, Carrie Firestone is the co-founder and chairman and CEO of Aureus Asset Management, uh, previously, she spent 22 years at Fidelity Investments, uh, where she was most recently the diversified fund manager in the growth group with oversight of the Large Cap Fund, Advisor Large Cap Fund, Destiny One Fund, and several institutional nonprofit and pension funds. Carrie's Fidelity career began uh, in 1983. She was an assistant fund manager under the legendary Peter Lynch on the Magellan Fund. Uh, we're going to ask her some questions about that experience today. Uh, Carrie received a bachelor and a master's in in business administration from Harvard, uh, and she's a regular contributor to CNBC as well as other financial media. Uh, Keith Cardoza is the chief investment officer of Brownson, Ramis, and Foxworth. He co-chairs the firm's investment strategy and impact investment committees and serves on BRF's private equity, credit, public markets, real estate, and knowledge management committees. And he also leads the firm's asset allocation and manager selection efforts. Prior to joining BRF, Keith served as a managing director of Merrick Ventures, an investment firm focused on technology investments. And previous to that, Keith chaired Boeing's investment strategy and asset allocation committee, uh, where he was responsible for the investment strategy for their $41 billion in retirement assets. Prior to Boeing, Keith managed the $6 billion equity portfolio for the Illinois State Board of Investments Pension Fund. Uh, Keith received a B.A. in economics from the University of Chicago and is a CFA charter holder. Our third panelist today is Shannon Sakosha, who's the chief investment officer at Boston Private, uh, which is a leading provider of fully integrated wealth management, trust, and private and commercial banking services. Uh, she's responsible for setting the overall investment strategy for the firm, overseeing asset allocation, research, portfolio management, external manager search, and selection, as well as trading, and investment risk management. Uh, she also worked closely with both the business development team and the wealth advisor team to help construct and deliver customized wealth management solutions to meet client-specific needs. Previous to Boston Private, Miss Sacocha, uh, Shannon was the director of manager search and selection for Silverbridge, which was acquired by Banyan Partners, which was then acquired by Boston Private, which is where she is today. Um, She got a BA uh, in economics and history from Brandeis University and is also a a CFA charter holder. And like Carrie, uh, Shannon is a frequent contributor to CNBC and other financial media. Uh, We're really excited to have these three panelists on today. Like I said, three of the leading independent uh, RIAs in the country uh, that provide a whole suite of services to their clients. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci is the founder uh, and uh, managing partner of Skybridge Capital is going to be conducting the interview today. I'll kick it over to Anthony uh, to to conduct the interview.
1: Well, first of all, John, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be with you guys. What I thought I would do is uh, we'll go round robin in the beginning here, and then I'll give some individuals questions. But Let's start with Gary, and then we'll take commentary from each of you. S&P 500 uh, down 30% uh, in March. Uh, a little more than that, actually, and then has now rallied back to flat. Are we ahead of ourselves? Uh, was this a near-term blip? Uh, is Fed induction? Tell us what you think, Gary.
2: Well, I, I think it's very interesting, Anthony, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, that the market is back to even, and you wonder what the market would have done if there was no coronavirus this year. So. Uh, at the time, on March 23rd, when the market hit the bottom, the uh, S&P was 22.36 or so, and we thought that the market was very cheap at the time and that it was oversold, and we expected it to rally. Uh, it has rallied 44% now. Uh, that's not trivial. That, I believe, is the most that any market at any time is, has gone up in a short period. So do we think that the market is overpriced? I think that's what you've asked. Or do we think that there might be more to go? What we're seeing in the market today and for the last five trading days is that it has brought it. And what drove the market higher for the first 35% of this rally was technology and the kinds of digital platform companies that have driven the market higher for the last two to three years. And what has moved in the last week of trading has been financials, energy, industrial, just a broader range of sectors. And if that can continue, and we see the reopening as a success, then I think that the market can at least hold this ground and could go higher at the end of the year. But it's not a cheap market by any means. It just isn't cheap anymore. It was cheap. It's gotten pretty full, and it would be great if we can stabilize and show that we've got some revenue generation over the next few months to support this kind of valuation.
1: What do you you think, Shannon? Cheap, overvalued,
3: undervalued?
4: I think it's impossible to tell whether it's cheap or not. I mean, the earnings, which is the denominator of PE, is completely unknown. Um, There's zero transparency right now as it relates to earnings over the next couple of quarters. Uh, I think there's also a contingency that's being built into this market that um, you feel like you're in a situation where there are Things that need to occur over the course of the next eight weeks or so to support this. So we talked a lot about, you know, a, a, an additional coronavirus package, and that would include the extension of unemployment benefits um, to the, um, you know, extension through the end of the year. That is required right now for what we're expecting, and um, I think the market is a little bit ahead of where we are from a support perspective. If you look at things like personal income, the savings rate all of that cash that flowed into the market uh, over the course or the economy over the course of the last eight weeks or so has all been artificial stimulus. So if that rolls off in the middle of summer and we don't yet have the expansion of consumer spending back to reasonable levels, then I think that we're gonna see a second wave potentially of unemployment.
3: Mr. Cardozo, Keith, what do you think? Uh, I can't tell you what's gonna happen in the short term. We are very strategic at Brownson Remus and we do tell our clients to rebalance back to their strategic targets, as we did at the bottom on March 23rd, and as we would now. It's, uh, it's very hard sometimes to convince a client to buy into a falling market and to sell into a rising market, uh, but it is very important to continue to rebalance. But uh, on one hand, things are looking really good, right? U.S. financial markets are very liquid, they're functioning well. Of course, a lot of that has had to do with the uh, Fed intervention, Spreads continue to tighten. I think the high yield is now yielding a 550, which is the lowest since the beginning of March. Um, the yield curve is steeper now. Uh, I think as of the close of at least Friday, I didn't see what it did today, uh, but the yield curve between 10 and, uh, the 10 year and the two year was 70 basis points. And just as an inverted yield curve can predict a recession, a steeper yield curve can predict growth. Um, equity volatility has subsided and the VIX is back down to 25 or so. Uh, we've been under 30 since uh, May 19th. Um, that's the longest we've had that stretch since February. And uh, you know, companies have not had problems uh, issuing bonds and and continuing to borrow more money. we've had a, probably a trillion dollars of issuance so far this year. Um, you know, March and April uh, were record record months for issuance. Uh, May uh, fell just short of uh, of a new record. Um, So there's a lot of positive things, but, you know, of course, the challenges going forward is uh, just as companies are taking on a lot of debt, uh, that's being coupled with uh, probably lower productivity going forward into the future. You know, companies were maximized for just-in-time delivery, for just-in-time sales, and, you know, now all of our companies are being restructured for the safety of our employees, the safety of our uh, customers. Um, We are uh, reshoring, uh, a lot of our supply chain, uh, particularly from China, uh, but as deglobalization continues to occur, that's going to hurt productivity. And uh, you know, as much as demand comes back, we're not going to get to 100% demand anytime soon. So companies are now taking on debt with lower productivity and lower demand going
2: forward. Keith, I have a question. How many of the people who um, you suggested on March 23rd that they should reallocate upward on equities? Said, "Hey, great idea! I'm dying to have you do that for us."
3: Yeah, it's a—you know—it's a challenge. Um, you know, our clients are very strategic, and they have been through time periods like this before. Right? Many of our clients were through the 07, 08, 09 uh, liquidity crisis, um, and in our firm has been in business for 50 years, so even going through things like the dot-com uh, bubble bust. Uh, so they—they they have been in time periods where, frankly, the markets were down more than 50 percent, let alone 35 percent.
1: What what asset classes, given where we are right now, Shannon, what asset classes do you see the most opportunity?
4: I think there's still some opportunity in credit. Uh, if you look at, you know, whether, I mean, I think there's a little less opportunity in loans than there is in high yield uh, bonds right now, but there's still some opportunity there. Um, I think that, you know, from our perspective, if you look at emerging markets in particular, they haven't, they haven't participated in this rally that we've experienced certainly in the month of May that uh, we've seen in the United States. I think that for us, we're looking at it in terms of um Carrie's point, you know, there are sectors within the U.S. equity market that are more or less attractive based on valuation. And then there are large swaths of assets outside of the United States that are pretty attractive regardless of where you're looking. And so I think that there has been this sensitivity over the last decade about the underperformance of international emerging market equities and debt for that matter. Uh, And I think that that shift potentially to a weaker dollar scenario or even a stable dollar scenario could create opportunities for investments outside of the United States. If you truly believe that the global economy is going to reaccelerate, which was our expectation coming into 2020, and perhaps that's been kicked to 2021, you should be looking outside of the United States for potential opportunities in the equity and credit markets.
1: All right, so more more diversity, basically. Carrie, do you think that this there's, you you worked at Fidelity. You, you know you, you've got this experience. Tech and momentum, up until today, seem to be driving the markets. Gary, do you do you think that's a smart trade? Do you think that's the Nifty Fifty of twenty twenty, or do you think there's still room to go there?
2: Well, yes. So that's the simple answer. Yes, I think that uh, tech uh, and momentum. Uh, if we if we mean by that, um, the people who brought us here, meaning the type of companies that have led on the on the upside through this whole rally, those are the companies that both have been able to maintain their leadership and been able to persevere and succeed throughout this pandemic. They're highly valued because they ought to be. And you know we, we did a study actually, I wrote a piece on this uh, a while ago um, and I did a chart for CNBC that showed that the contribution of earnings within the S&P 500 from technology stocks and communication services was less than, um, I'm sorry, their share of net income, was about 40% for this quarter, and their share of valuation was 35%. That number can be different today. But certainly, they are not overly valued if we look at their contribution to total earnings. And that, that can expand, in fact, not contract. And it's because if you look at companies that are almost made for an environment, which is difficult, that requires Remote working requires connectivity of a different type service providers that have to deal with a a new world. It's Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, PayPal, the different types of companies that, you know, we know they're not all in the same sector, but they're ones that have been able to prosper in this environment. So, of course, that's where money has gone. Do I think that they need to take a break and rest? Well, you know, perhaps, and that's what's going on right now, but I, I think that for the market to go higher, they have to be the leaders again, because they are the drivers of, of this economy. It what, it's what makes the United States a preferential um, place to invest rather than other global economies, even though they might be cheaper, they deserve a lower multiple than the US. And I agree, by the way, with Shannon, that I think emerging markets are cheap, but to the question about what leads in the US, You know, this could be another week or two of this kind of rotation, but I don't think it'll last unless, you know, the market falls and everything will will fall. But if it's going higher, I think that we have to go back to who's leading on earnings and revenues um, over the next, you know, the next six months.
1: So, so Keith, my, my old boss, Lee Cooperman, uh, tepid on the markets uh, three or four weeks ago, Uh, Dave Tepper, Appaloosa, tepid on the markets. Uh, Stan Druckenberg, a little more bullish this morning, but very tepid on the markets uh, four to six weeks ago. Uh, What did they get wrong?
3: Well, uh, I think there's a few things. Uh, One, um, people have been conditioned to buy the dip, and it has worked over and over and over again. Uh, I think second, uh, the massive intervention by both the Federal Reserve uh, and, frankly, Congress to keep the economy going in in any way they could, and to keep uh, asset prices high. And I think three, there was just a look through. You know, it's this it's this reminder that uh, only ten percent of a stock's value is based upon earnings of the next twelve months. Ninety percent of a stock's value is based upon. Uh, earnings that they'll gain after that, and I think there was quite a bit of look through this uh, event. So I think uh, by by being conditioned to buy the dip, uh, with the Fed support and congressional support, with uh, both fiscal and monetary stimulus, uh, as well as uh, just looking through this current COVID crisis, um, I think that's that's probably what a lot of us missed.
1: But let me but let me play devil's advocate and go to Shannon for a second because you mentioned the uncertainty of earnings. Um, My old boss, Lee Cooperman, would say, well, I can't value this market. Is it 24 times earnings, 22 times earnings? What are the earnings for 2021? So, Shannon, what would you say to somebody like Steve Cooperman? I
4: think you see. I wasn't
1: going to correct you. I mixed (laughs) a couple of geniuses together. I'm sorry.
4: But uh, Um,
1: I, I meant to say Lee Cooperman.
4: You know, I I think the challenge here is that I don't know that that right now that anybody's focused on that. I think that this look through has has too rash, I, and I agree with Keith. I think the other thing that's happening is that we came into 2020, and this was is not a typical recession. Generally, we have some sort of ec- economic excess that brings us to the brink, and we have an overheating something asset bubble uh area of the economy we didn't have that here and so i think the look through is really you know once it was determined that this wasn't going to be catastrophic um, from an economic perspective and that they we would be coming out the other side i think that expectations just sort of reset to where we were at the end of 2019 which we're not, stocks weren't that cheap then either, let's be honest, to be coming into this year. And so I think, you know, as much in as much as you'd like to trade on the fundamentals, um, the Fed has essentially told you that this um, bursting of the credit bubble that we've all been waiting for, this retribution for all of these companies to over-leveraging their balance sheet, it's not coming. It's not coming today, and it's not coming tomorrow. And so now this pushes all of that out a few more years. We're in a zero interest rate policy. I hate to use the term because it's overused, but there is no alternative. So whatever that E is at the bottom of that PE on the S&P 500, where else are you going to go? Maybe not in the next two months to three months, because I think there will be additional volatility and uncertainty, especially with China and the election on the horizon. But out into 2021, if you look at the back half of next year, where are you earning return for your clients? Are you earning it someplace else in the equity market? I'm not so sure.
1: Well, no, I know, look, you, you you make a good point, but let's go to the zero interest rates for a second. So uh, Professor Stephanie Kilton uh, just wrote a book called The Deficit Myth. It's coming out tomorrow. I had the opportunity to read it over the weekend. Uh, so let me flip this over to, uh, I'll figure back and carry for a second. I'm talking about the modern, modern I'm talking about what Shannon is basically saying. We're, interest rates are at zero. There's no other place to go. Yeah. Uh, put it into revenue generating tech stocks. And uh, otherwise, there's no other market, if you will. And so there's a yeah. thinness to that. Uh, yeah. But let's well, talk about modern monetary theory for a second. Totally okay.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, there's a new book coming out called The Deficit Myth. We can we can rack up another $30 trillion of deficits. It's good for mankind. Uh, Professor Stephanie Kilton is saying that in her book. What do you say?
2: Well, I, I think she's got a very good point. You know, monetary uh, policy has changed over the last 30 years. It used to be where there would be inflation if the Fed printed a lot of money. And that has now changed. We observed that in 2008. Why? Why
1: has that changed? Why, why don't we have inflation?
2: Well, first of all, we, we didn't have inflation over the last 12 years because there was an excess of supply. So even though demand grew over the last decade, there was so much supply going into 2007 and 8 that we never achieved a point of equilibrium or demand exceeding supply. And now we're at a level where, you know, there hasn't been inflation for years. Interest rates are low. You can print money and it's it it does not cause excess demand in, into the marketplace. And the global nature of the way people buy and sell has also push continue to to push prices down for
1: okay, I I accept I accept that Keith is that a temporary phenomenon or uh, for our time or is that something where the paradigm has shifted as a result of technology and that's now something permanent that we can yeah. have an unlimited amount of credit printing without having any inflation
3: I, I don't think that's necessarily true um but I would add to the comments of where can we go now? I actually think there's actually a few different places we can go now. And especially you're you're raising issues that are very complex. And what I'd say is that one of the things that investors need to look at now are those complex assets. So assets that are typically avoided by a traditional bond manager or a traditional stock manager. You know, as we were going through the end of March, one of our hedge fund managers said, hey, the way this market is priced is stocks are being priced for a three month shutdown bonds are being priced for a three-quarter shutdown and structured credit is being priced for a three-year shutdown. Now, that was a little bit of an exaggeration, if not a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, to his point, look, stocks have come back pretty quickly. Many areas on the credit side have come back, but things like structured credit is still very dislocated. Now, that's not something you can get through an index fund or through an ETF or even a traditional mutual fund, but it is something that you can get through an alternative manager. Um, you know, Even assets like, for instance, that you can gain through a, a mutual fund manager, something like you know, municipal high yield, which is something that most traditional bond managers and uh, stock managers will, will will avoid, even if it's a good value. So we why hasn't have... it come back, Keith? Now, I think because of, of illiquidity. And there there has been a big challenge in this marketplace of being able to make assessments about liquidity in the marketplace. And when you think of things like municipal bonds, uh, even particularly high-yield municipal municipal bonds, right, pension funds aren't there, endowments aren't there, foundations aren't there, non-U.S. investors aren't there. And even for U.S. investors, it's a very particular segment of the market. It's people uh, who, who are making high income. Um, but on an inter- intermediate-duration high-yield municipal bond portfolio, you can earn about 5.5% tax-free. Even on a shorter-duration high-yield municipal portfolio, you can earn about 4%. But it's not something you need to, can do on your own. It's something that you need to hire a manager who has expertise in that area. So, Shannon, does structured credit come back, or is it in a three-year freeze?
1: As I'm as I'm saying this to you, my heart rate is going up because you know I'm uh, uh, I'm long a tremendous amount of structure credit. I know. I was
4: I gotta I have to me, Yeah,
1: lie to me. <laughs> Tell me it's coming back like tomorrow. But no, I'm kidding. There, Give us your critical analysis of it.
4: There absolutely are, are uh, there's opportunities in structured credit. Um, but I think what March drove home for people is that you really need to understand how you feel about illiquidity even if it's short-term in nature, because there were huge opportunities in the high-quality municipal bond market in the middle of March, as long as you didn't need to be liquid today. And so I think in structured credit, I think as long as you have the expectation that there could be pockets of opportunity there, that some of that is going to dislocate, con- there could be continued dislocation in that as we morph into this new phase of economic recovery. And you have the... the, the the wherewithal and the liquidity timeframe to be able to sit there and wait for those trades to pay off. And I think that that's the challenge right now is that the structures that are created for you to be in structured credit are vary widely from interval funds to, you know, seven to 10 year lockup funds. And I think you really want to think about the underlying assets, make sure that you're giving the manager to Keith's point, the opportunity to maximize the return on those assets without another run on liquidity. And then I do think that you'll have opportunities, but there's there's a premium for liquidity in this market that I'm not sure is going to go away ever. And so I think that it's going to create the haves and have nots as it relates to So
1: so are you a buyer selectively of structured credit or are you a seller of the whole thing?
4: No, I think I absolutely think that that it belongs in portfolios, particularly for clients, again, that can commit to a portion of their portfolio being illiquid and seeing it that way and and and. Positioning their overall portfolio for a portion of that to remain in structured credit, um, sure. you know, I think that the Fed has basically taken off the table the opportunities in in traditional, you know, traditional bonds to 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 a large extent, and so I do think you need to get more complex in the credit space in order to make those returns.
2: Anthony, so, there, there's yeah. just one, one other point um, I, I wanted to make with regard to a question you asked earlier about why is it that Lee Cooperman or Howard Marks, et cetera, you know or Stanley Druckenmeyer have been so negative and what was perhaps different about this time versus other markets such as in 2008 when the market collapsed and they might have been much more positive. You know, we, we sometimes call this, or I've called this a blasphemous bull run in that it has felt like blasphemy to say that it's fine to buy the market because this market was not about evil doing of certain banks and the rest of us felt gosh, there's so much undervalued um, stock out there, we have to support these companies, all of these people, institutions, you're just you know, buying stock because it's out there and uh, there's, there's nothing about it that felt evil. Buying the market at the time where things looked very grim about a pandemic felt to many people almost sacrilegious. And it was very hard to separate your feelings about what was happening around the world as an enormous health crisis. And then feeling like, you know, we've got to make money on this. It just felt to, I mean, I really think that no, I think, it was I think, a struggle that many it, people had. I think it makes it sense. Great I mean, investors.
1: But I just think that, you know, when, when I-
2: They were when, wrong. When, when Scott
1: Wapner invited me on six weeks ago to talk about this, you got $4 trillion coming in from the Fed. As I said, it's a, It's a water, it's a water wall of money. It's not a bazooka. It's a green tsunami washing over the United States. It's impossible for it not to show up in asset prices. We can do gymnastics mentally about the fundamentals, but it's just, it's just crazy. We're going to do a a quick round Robin, if you guys don't mind. And then I'm going to turn it over to John Darcy where we have uh, audience participation, some questions. So quick round Robin So make the answer short, yes or no, don't like, uh, you know, a sentence or so. The hedge fund space is underperformed. Let's start with you, Carrie. You're on my screen. The hedge fund space is underperformed. Is that a good place to be for your clients going forward, yes or no?
2: Not necessarily. They haven't played it well for the last few years. Why should they start playing it better now?
1: Okay, so you would be underweighted in hedge funds. Okay, yeah. we're not inviting you back. Can we go to Shannon <laughs> now? Accept okay.
2: yours. Accept yours no, no, I'm kidding.
1: I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love the objectivity. That's why we do this. Okay. <laughs> we
2: Shannon, manage go our ahead. own money.
1: <laughs> Sh- Shannon, go ahead. We're recording this for posterity, <laughs> Shannon. I might add that, okay? No, I'm kidding. I, so I-
2: I think there are
4: the opportunities in places there haven't been historically. Um, there's some probably some more opportunities in long short equity as we move forward. I think there's opportunities in structured credit. I'm shying away from relative credit that you know, the feds essentially taking those trades out. Um, I'd say uncorrelated asset classes that are available in the hedge fund structure remain pretty attractive here.
3: And what about you, Keith? Yes, by complexity, structured credit, distress credit, uh, multi-strategy funds, macro funds. And, and with macro, you're liquid. Okay, let's,
1: let, let's go to active versus passive management. So that could be in hedge fund format. It could be you know, non-ETFs versus ETFs. Uh, let's flip it around. Let's take it around the horn. Let's go, Kara. What do you think?
2: Yeah, so if we're talking about active versus, if we are active managers, therefore, are, you know, I believe in active management. I think that the passive investing approach has a problem right now because passive includes an awful lot of um, Equities that will not have not participated over the last you know five plus years in the economy in the economy, and I'm not sure how they participate. So they're pulling down. I'd say right. So you have to buy
1: the bathwater with the baby is basically what you're saying. What about you, Shannon?
4: We use both, um, depending on the asset class. I mean, if you're trying to capture beta, you go cheap, and if you're trying to get active management, I think active management is probably a bit more in vogue now for the next 12 to 18 months, given the dislocation, but you know, there's always opportunities to use both in your portfolio.
3: Okay. And what about you, Keith? On the U.S. equity side, we're passive. And we have been passive for decades on a mix. And we certainly are active uh, on fixed income. And I think particularly in, in this environment, with fixed income, you, you need active management. If you were looking back at the world,
1: it's 2025. So it's, it's, it's five years from now. We are, equity markets are higher, the economy's booming. Where do you see the world? Let's go in reverse. I'll start with you, Keith. You're on my screen. It's five years from now. This this was a great, you're you're talking to your client today, but you have the foresight of five years from now. So you're encouraging them to do what?
3: Yeah, so five years is not that far away. Um, In the long run, we really do feel confident that stocks will outperform bonds and bonds will outperform cash. But as you tighten that time frame, even within five years now for 2025, it becomes more difficult to predict. Um, but that said, you know, with the equity markets where we are priced for a, a U-shaped recovery, you know, assuming that uh, COVID goes into, uh, we have a summer respite from COVID, that things somewhat get back to normal by the end of August, that kids return to school, that we have a vaccine by, call it the third quarter of 2021 and the economy is returned fully by fourth quarter of 2022. So 30 months from now, you know, equities can be a good place to be over the next five years. Okay, so bullish on equities. How about you, Carrie?
2: Well, I think it's it's hard to bet against equities, because if you look, you know, over the past 50 years, they've consistently returned, um, you know, in excess of inflation and in excess nicely of the risk free rate. And so, yeah, I would say that you have to have particularly if if you're a certain age um, and risk tolerance, a high proportion of your assets in equity. I also think that we might get over the next year or so, some real dislocation in assets like real estate. You know, it's just totally unclear right now whether urban real estate is going to be attractive or not, what's going to happen with the suburbs. You know, they were giving away everything. I don't live in Connecticut. I live in Boston, but it seemed to me people were giving away big estates in Greenwich for very little. And now suddenly the prices are gone up 300%. So, you know, I'd I'd like to see what happens with real estate as a possible investment over the next few years. Commercial real estate also can have some kind of dislocation. And that can be true overseas. You know, I, I, um, I think that we'll have these opportunities in the next 12 months. It's not clear right now how they'll shake out, but uh, but equities has to be an important factor. And I think interest rates will be higher too. So I think that we'll have more opportunity in the fixed income side. And so we have to think, yes, we'll be buying your fund.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I got that on tape. Okay. We're going to end it. Thank you guys for participating. We're going to end it right there on that one statement. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Let's keep going. <laughs> Let's keep going, Shannon. What do you think? It's five years out what are you what are you projecting for clients
4: I think there's we continue to be in a low growth environment Anthony so I think that the one thing that we are projecting for clients is more subdued returns across both the equity and fixed income space and so I think things like um, fees taxes, Um, you know, income opportunities outside of your traditional fixed income basket, those become increasingly important because clients expectations can only be changed so much. I mean, they need cash flow from their portfolio in order to support their needs. And so, you know, I think that that's where we're focused is on this lower growth, lower return environment that we're going to continue to see um, over the course of the next five years. But in, even in that case, I mean, you want to see your, allocations and equities because they at least provide some capital appreciation opportunity.
1: Okay. I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey. He's got some questions from our audience. I, I appreciate you guys participating on
0: our game show. Uh, go ahead, John. Yeah, we, we have a lot of great questions to get to. So, you know, investment advisory asset allocation manager selection is only one piece of the puzzle where you're an investment advisor. What was it like communicating psychologically with your clients during the coronavirus-induced sell-off that happened in markets? And, and long-term, how has this pandemic and the volatility that we've seen changed the way you'll look at risk management uh, in within asset allocation for your clients?
2: Um, can I take that?
0: Yeah, Carrie, you go yeah, first. So
2: um, we wrote to clients four times from February, you know, we started, I guess, February twenty. 20- 5th was the first time we wrote, and then we wrote twice in March and once at the beginning of April. Uh, in 2008, uh, beginning of 2009, we wrote to them twice. So this was a scarier period of time. And we felt that the whole healthcare care and uh, very uh, strange elements of, of this crisis required more uh, reaching out by Aureus to our clients. So um, we... we tried to be thoughtful and calming Uh, in March. We gave them a a chart of what has happened the last six times. The market fell 28% or more since 1961 in the subsequent three, six, 12 and 18 month periods. And it turns out that in every one of those periods, the market is higher following that trough, three, six, 12 and 18 months afterwards. And that that spreads that gap spreads as you go further out from the trough, so you know it was our way of helping to convince our clients as well as, our, as ourselves that it was a good time to buy stocks. But we could do it in a you know a kind of graphical depiction, and I thought that was you know that was a valuable um, you know piece of um, uh, illustration for them. On the on the risk front, there were two things that I, I I think are important. One is that the U.S. government, the Treasury, and the Fed. Um, showed us showed us that they would reduce the risk of this environment by the amount that they were able to, you know, push out toward businesses to citizens on the, on the Fed side of, of borrowing. And that definitely uh, alleviated a big question mark and reduced the risk uh, to investors. And I thought that was, you know, that was very important. We saw that happen to some extent in 2008, but this is, you know, much bigger. And number two, when you start to experience this kind of meltdown in the market, you definitely as an um, as an advisor see the tolerance that your clients have to risk. They may tell you how they feel about it going into you know, a relationship, but not until this sort of thing happens. Do you either hear them say, I'm really scared, maybe we should sell 25%, or they say, hey, this looks like a great opportunity, we should be buying. So it, it gives us more information that it could take, you know, 15 years to accumulate otherwise.
3: I wanna add Shannon, to um,
0: keep the second
3: part of that question around risk. And, and in fact, Shannon brought this up as well in terms of liquidity. You know, I, I think part of the challenge that we have in our industry as a whole is when we look at risk systems, they deal with complicated problems but not complex problems. And what do I mean by that? complicated is like a jet engine. Once you figure out how a jet engine works, it works the same way over and over and over again. But complex are things like the weather and market movements. It's it's always ever changing. There's a lot of variables and once they're figured out, they continue to change. And so a lot of risk systems are based upon things like expected return and standard deviation and and correlation. And and then you can output some sort of a number. The, The challenges is as Shannon mentioned before, would be things like liquidity. A lot of risk systems, it's complex. We, we can't measure illiquidity. It becomes very difficult. And so, for instance, even in terms of communicating things like with clients on something like investment grade municipal bonds, which a lot, lot of clients consider to be the safe part of their portfolio, during a good chunk of March and going into April and even now, uh, it's difficult to sell even an investment grade municipal bond. And so how do you communicate to a client that, hey, this is the safety part of your portfolio, but yet there are time periods where it's not advantageous to get out. And in fact, if you do, you, you're, you're really going to be hurting yourself. And and I think we just need to do a much better job as an industry, of uh, being able to assess that liquidity across the entire portfolio.
0: Dan, do you have anything to add to that?
4: Um, not really. I feel like everybody's really covered it. I would say the one big difference between, for instance, 2008, 2009, to Carrie's point, and this time around is that our firm was more of an investment management firm back in 2008, 2009, and we were much more of a holistic wealth management firm with a significant planning component. And I would say that that really helped us because reminding you know clients about their plan, what we had already set up for them, um, even when they started to get perhaps a little squirrely, um, when we could just revisit the plan and remind them that we had really factored in through things like Monte Carlo simulations, all of these potential events and that they were still coming out the other side where they needed to be from an outcome perspective. I think that really helped. And so I think this particular crisis has probably driven home the importance of holistic wealth management and financial advisory as opposed to asset management, which I think, you know, 20 years ago is what we probably all were trafficking in.
3: Yeah. I will admit Browns Remus we've been there for 50 years. So we are first and foremost, a financial planning firm. And in addition to that, we do investment strategy and asset allocation and manager selection. And so this is something we've been doing now for five decades.
0: Thank you all for that. Uh, we have several questions related to potential inflation. So obviously, it's debatable about whether we're entering a potentially inflationary environment. Anthony touched on modern monetary theory and rising deficits and things like that. But we have a couple questions that I'll combine into one. Uh, One, if we do get some level of inflation, what impact do you expect that to have on earnings? And do you expect companies to be able to pass that through to consumers? And second, uh, given the possibility of inflation, do you think that things like gold, Bitcoin, uh, or other uh, inflation hedges, where do they belong in a portfolio right now, maybe increasingly so relative to a few months ago?
4: I just want to start with the the misconception that there hasn't been inflation. There hasn't been inflation the way that we measure inflation, according to you know the CPI Um, services has certainly are certainly more expensive Um, housing is more expensive, depending on you know where you're where you are particularly rents and so. I think when we start to think about inflation is what is the next level of inflation that could potentially feed into corporate profitability because that's really what we're trying to discount here is you know how much of this will impact Corporate profitability going forward, and so if you think about the costs, and I think Anthony may have mentioned this before, you know, labor productivity and the cost of inputs that continues to get cheaper and cheaper as technology gets cheaper, as we um, shift away from very heavy fixed asset businesses. To Carrie's point about where growth is, and that's really an intellectual capital going forward, and so I think that that is where you know we really have to shift our framework to: does what do we mean by inflation? because services inflation is certainly there. Look at healthcare, look at college costs. I mean, there is inflation in the economy, just not at the CPI level. And so I think you need to think about when you're looking at it from at a company level, what are the inputs that that company is going to increasingly be paying for? And do we expect there to be macroeconomic rationale for those inputs to get more costly? And that's really you know, how you should be looking at inflation. I, I think the CPI measure is dated, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see changes to that over the next five to 10 years.
2: You know, Also, we have to think about the near term and the long term. Over the near term, there are many inflationary pressures because of how companies that are reopening have to deal with the cost of a a COVID open business. So whether that's, um, you know, if you're a restaurant and you can only serve a third of your capacity, but you have the same amount of space, you have to charge more for your food. And if you're in the retail business and you can only have so many uh, customers in at a time, but again, you're paying the rent, keeping the lights on, have your inventory, but have to have filters and have to have all kinds of, you know, kind of um, measurements for your employees. That's inflationary. There are many um, ways in which people are going to deal with the coronavirus over the next six months that are going to be inflationary. Now, whether that changes after there's a vaccine, we don't know, but in the short term, it's inflationary. And if municipalities, state governments, and, uh, you know, eventually perhaps the federal government needs to raise taxes, because everything is taking so much of a budget to, to manage the healthcare expenses of um, this pandemic. That's going to be inflationary. If companies want to keep their profit margins, but their tax rates go up, you know, I, I think they, they're certainly going to have to try to pass some of that on to
0: consumers. Keith, do you have anything to add to the inflation question, and, and specifically about whether things like gold, cryptocurrencies belong as a small sliver in portfolios, given the potential specter of inflation?
3: We do not have gold or cryptocurrencies uh, as part of portfolios. Um, things like gold are, I think are just, you know, much too volatile for any type of expected return. And so that, that is not something that uh, that we, we contemplate.
0: Okay, yeah. on, to, on to the next question. We have a few that relate to China. Uh, about whether, I know Shannon touched briefly on emerging markets earlier, but you guys look at China, uh, you know, obviously a fast-growing economy that's been able to reopen a little bit more quickly than other global economies. Do you think that uh, China has some attractiveness as an investment destination right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, we we do. I mean, we have, um, of our equity assets, a certain percent are in international funds. we manage the equities for us equities directly because um, many of us have done this you know as analysts and fund managers for for decades and we like to do that but when it comes to international investing um, we don't we use index funds or etfs or we we use um, managers whom we have a lot of faith in and we have a manager that's um china a direct manager and you know i think that you can't be a global investor without having some representation in China. It's the second largest economy. It's become a larger factor in every index you want to look at. That's you know non non U.S. and um, and you know it's an interesting. They're trading at about the same level on a year to day basis as the U.S. Meaning about flat. It's about about flat. So. Um, we own Alibaba that's the one name that's in our portfolio. We own 32 names Baba is one of them it's up year to date a few percent um, and you know we continue to think that's a, a great stock to hold. Uh, but there are there are many good companies. it's not so easy to understand them uh, as thoroughly as people who are on the ground there and so we've allocated that mostly to, to um, you know, external managers, but yeah, I think that tr- China is very important in a in a global framework.
3: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, we allocate to China through our both our emerging market managers as well as our international equity managers. Um, you know, Anthony talked about before looking out to twenty twenty five. I mean, it's undeniable that China's economy is going to continue to to grow. Um, you know, being the second largest economy, and whether uh, whether we are uh, economic allies, economic rivals, economic opponents, or economic enemies, um, the US economy and the Chinese economy are going to continue to uh, be at the forefronts uh, around the globe. And I'd like us to think uh, about us being rivals where we could continue to make each other better. Uh, but frankly, even if we become economic, uh, economic enemies where we all start, start having a bifurcated internet system where there are two internet systems and two you know, global uh, uh, supply chains and, 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 and it becomes a sphere of US versus China, I, I think it is important to be allocated um, uh, to a country, uh, an economy that's going to c- continue to, to grow. But before Shannon talks, I want to go back. Are you,
1: are you worried about political risk in China? And yes, then secondarily, sir. are you worried about political risk in the U.S.? If you were Chinese looking at our television, you'd probably would think that too.
3: What, what do you think? Yeah, political risk is, is certainly is always a factor. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons why when we allocate money to areas like China, uh, well, and even in the United States, we want to work with money managers who are, who are experts Uh, who know the politics and know the economics and know the liquidity and know the systems and know the accounting and the balance sheets uh, much better um, than than most. Uh, So it's identifying the portfolio managers that have the uncommon knowledge uh, of the politics and the
0: economics and the demographics and the technology and being willing to trust them. How would the market react, in your opinion, and we'll start with Shannon on this one, If we did get a large second wave of the virus, we had more rolling shutdowns and quarantines. Is this a situation where you can't lose because if we do get another shutdown, we'll get another wave of Fed liquidity and and fiscal stimulus? Or how do you think markets would react in that scenario?
4: Uh, I think the markets will react negatively to a resurgence. However, I think that there is little political appetite for a return to a, a lockdown scenario that we experienced in April. And I you know, I don't mean to be, you know um, crass, but <laughs> I, I just think that from a political perspective, you know, you're going to have pockets of progression that are going to see, you know, the benefit of going back into these lockdown scenarios. And then you're going to see most places, really react I think very differently than what we saw in April and May and I you know I hate to say that and and, and I think it's going to be a challenge you know as we go through and, and see this reacceleration of cases And so while I'm hopeful that we will not have a resurgence of the virus I also am not expecting um, you' you're seeing a lot of anecdotal evidence and also several, Um, very notable economists coming out and saying that, you know, the way that we handled this was a mistake from an economic standpoint, that we should have taken a different tact. I think that's very easy to say in hindsight, um, since we managed to flatten the curve clearly. Uh, But I don't think that there is appetite for that in the August, September timeframe. I am more concerned about how that will affect the elections in November, because I think that there will be a very, um, I think that there's going to be an emphatic vote on how this crisis was handled in the elections in November, and if we get a resurgence in April and September in August and September, excuse me, I think that's going to be even more impactful to those elections. So that's where that's sort of how I view that.
1: So that a resurgence potential. is bad for the Trump administration, Shannon.
4: Um, I. I think it depends on how it's handled. I, I do. I think it depends on how it's handled in that August and September timeframe. I think it depends on what's happening economically up until that point. And I do think that, again, I think that if we end now, Anthony, to your question, and everybody can take the last couple of months and say, okay, how did we handle this politically? Who are the political winners and losers? If you have a resurgence in April and September, or in August and September, you just get. So much more fodder for that potentially, you know, contentious election um, that I'm. I don't know what the outcome will be of that, but I know that it will be more than about the progressive platform versus the incumbent platform than you know we we could expect right now.
1: All right, if, if Trump wins the next time I have you on, Shannon, I'll be wearing an orange wig. Okay. You know,
3: I'll add to the resurgence. What's that? You know, I'll add to the to the second wave. You know, a, a lot of uh, scientists and experts do believe we are going to have a second wave in the fall, um, but we're not going to have a national shutdown again. Uh, the national shutdown was probably a very prudent step to take because we didn't know where the hot spots were going to be. We didn't know what was going to be the exponential rate of the virus. We didn't know how it was primarily transmitted. There were so many unknowns about this very deadly and, and dangerous virus, and a national shutdown probably was prudent. We didn't have a
2: national shutdown. We had a state by state shutdown. It was never national. I mean, it wasn't to be Understood, so
3: so so, so going to that further, uh, I think in the fall, to your point, it will become even more hyper-localized. You will see perhaps specific cities, uh, specific areas. Um, It will be more hyper-local in terms of being able to identify where hotspots are. Uh, where we will have to perhaps mitigate the virus. And also hopefully over the summer, um, we will have uh, more therapeutics on the marketplace, right? There's not gonna be uh, any vaccine by the fall, uh, but there's a good chance there'll be some therapeutics on the marketplace that will help uh, alleviate the symptoms. All right, well, we're gonna wrap up here in a second. So of course, I have to talk about
1: politics if you guys don't mind. So let's start with you, Carrie. What are you telling your clients about the election?
2: I'd say that we're telling our clients right now that the market would be happy with either candidate. I'm assuming the candidates are Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I don't think that the Biden agenda is one that's going to make most uh, investors uh, wildly concerned about their holdings. It's, it's probably true that there would be uh, an interest in, in raising taxes, but the tax rate is so low relative to any time in history in the United States that even if taxes were to go up some, they would be far lower than they were under the Reagan administration, as an example. So okay. I, I think that um, that it's not as much of an, an issue about who wins. I think the bigger issue is what's subsequent to the election. You know, you, you wonder whether there's gonna be some national outcry, and I mean, um, protests, demonstrations, or worse, in either case you know um if if president trump wins or president trump doesn't win and i think unrest is very concerning to the market it hasn't been i mean just you know notice what's what's happened over the last week or so when we've had demonstrations rioting looting etc the market i think has gone up almost every one of those days so the market is living in a slightly you know different state of mind but i but at the time of the election and post-election, it could have an effect. What what happens subsequently could mm-hmm. affect the market and how mm-hmm. um, and how the country reacts. So that worries me somewhat, but Shannon, not the candidate.
1: I hear you, Sharon. What do you think?
2: I, I think it, I mean I,
4: I I think that typically markets like to see the incumbent win. Um, it's it creates greater, greater certainty. Normally, um, you know, we certainly have lived in an uncertain environment, and I think the China situation is is the area where you know people are concerned about what that what a re-election of President Trump would mean for continued China uh, tensions and that relationship. I also think it's important to see who Biden chooses for their for his running mate um, because I do, I, you know, we could see um, a, a more progressive platform after what's been happening from a social unrest perspective, come aboard with a, you know, potential vice presidential um, nominee. So I, I'm interested to see how he positions his running mate and potentially modifies his initial platform to, to be more progressive given, in response to what's happened over the last few days.
1: Well, he's definitely tacting to the middle right now because he, he, he was against the whole defunding of the police today. All mm-hmm. right, we'll end it with you, Keith. Where, where do you see things election wise? See, notice I, actually, I didn't pin any of you and ask you who you were voting for or who you thought would win. I want to invite you guys back. so I, <laughs> I, I, And I wanted you to accept my invitation, so I didn't, I didn't push too hard there. But go ahead, Keith. Who, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think market-wise?
3: So, and you, you talked about 2025. And the from a market perspective, I think the election is still way far out. I mean, for the market right now, no one's talking about the election. We're still interested in the reopening of the economy and what's going on with COVID. What's the advancement of therapeutics? What's the advancement of vaccines? What's the advancement of testing? Uh, Are more people gonna be sitting in restaurants? Are more people gonna be flying on airplanes? Are our local businesses gonna be open? And that is what the market cares about at this moment and will be for the next few months.
1: All right, John. You got any other final thoughts or uh, final question before we kick it off? Kick it out.
0: No, I I just want to thank uh, Shannon, Keith, and Carrie for joining us. You know, as we talked about in the open, these are three of the top independent RAs in the country. Beyond just asset management, as they touched on, financial planning, um, advisory work. You know, really great fiduciaries for their clients that, that we've built relationships with, and. Really appreciate you offering your insights, Anthony. You have any final words? I I don't. I just want to say
1: thank you, guys. I appreciate you coming on and the rigorous debate. Um, I'm a little sore about the opinion on the hedge fund thing, but that's okay. I can get over that. I can see through that. Uh, But you know, listen, we obviously think there's a huge opportunity in structured credit, and the stuff is fundamentally cheap. And so, but that'll be for us to convince you that further. So, with that, guys, thank you very much. I uh, I look forward to our. Next Salt Talk, and you guys were great. And I hope you all come back. Thank you. Thank you you again.
2: Thank you.